Hello, beloved listeners. This is Adrian, and just letting you know what we have in the feed this week. Um, what follows is a conversation that Autumn had with Mia Herndon for the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute podcast, uh, the Emergent Strategy podcast. And they cover all manner of things, but some really tender stuff around parenting in this age of COVID and what parents are having to navigate, how they're keeping their kids safe, what education looks like, and what society is preparing our children to do and to be. So we think this is a really valuable conversation. We want everyone to hear it, and we hope you enjoy it. We innately understand and that in order to remain functional as parents, we have to be in a practice of like forgiveness and metabolizing of those experiences, like forgiving, forgiving our parents, forgiving ourselves, forgiving our children and metabolizing all of it and learning from all of it as it's happening so that we're, you know, not reinforcing those same patterns with our children, not doing the same harms to our children that were done to us. Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. My name's Mia. I'm the Mason of Abundance, a facilitator and Black Mama with ESII. Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And today's guest is Autumn Brown. Autumn writes visionary fiction and creative nonfiction. Her writing has been featured in Octavia's Brood, the Procyon Science Fiction Anthology, Revolutionary Mothering, Pleasure Activism, and more. She co-hosts the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, with her sister, Adrienne Marie Brown. She is a facilitator and political educator with the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, Aorta. Autumn lives in Minneapolis with her three brilliant children, where she's working on her first novel. Welcome, Autumn. Welcome. Nia, your voice is so soothing. I was like... Wow, I'm really ready to be here now. (laughs) Thank you for saying Yeah, you've got a beautiful podcast voice. This is like, that's next level podcasting. Oh, I appreciate that deeply. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Thank you for having me. So how are you right now? I am. Well, it's funny. I I was joking with a coworker this morning that increasingly I feel like if things aren't in crisis, I should just say I'm fine um, and be glad about it. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, I, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to attract anything. I'm having to create some new methods for celebration with my children. And it's weird, the overlap right now from, for me between like 
the way that my life has been restructured anyway over the last two years because of getting divorced and my family life changing and then the restructuring of my life via the pandemic. So it's like these two layers of restructuring where I would have to be creating new traditions with my children anyway. And then I'm also having to create some new traditions with them Mm -hmm. inside of the moment of the pandemic too. So I'm reflecting on that a lot and trying to stay in gratitude for all the things that have all the gifts that this year has given in spite of how much terror there's been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you? Um, that's a word. I'm really appreciating what you're saying and I'm coming back to a thread on that, but how am I, you know, there's a part of me that is I'm nursing a little bit of a cold, trying not to like have that fear of like, did I get something? Oh, Oh shit, I need to go get a test. <laughs> right. So there's that. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, no. so I'm really just holding the space for that. Like every time right, I'm like, it is I'm just, possible you know, to still just what be it is. Sick. I just my immune system. You know? So there's that. Um right. but of course it like it always plays in given the moment, it plays into all these things. And I'm really in this deep place of how much fear or we're having to carry around potentially unintentionally doing harm to each other by way of our existence. So that this is something that I'm really sitting with. And I feel like it's true in every part of my life, not just in this particular instance, particularly as a parent, I think, you know, deeply about that particular aspect of like, in just my being, will I do something that unintentionally creates harm that I don't intend? Oh my God, yes. And how do I reconcile and, and just manage for it? So, so there's some of that I'm sitting with. And then in general, I, I was just saying, as we were kind of preparing, like I also feel like just not as much agency over my time as I'd like. And I'm just, you know, sitting with it. Cause I'm like, I made this schedule and yet, and still. <laughs> like how though <laughs> but how, like, what what machine version of myself was I living into right. rather than right. the human version of myself so anyway so yeah that moment where you look at your calendar and you're like who did this and then <laughs> it was only you exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay so, making sure that I just you know do this reflection um yes, yes. rather than like taking it out on anyone else um, but overall, I really honor what you said about it's not a crisis and so I'm okay. And so there is that part of me that is just like deep in gratitude and deep, deep gratitude for being mm-hmm. here, for my family being well, for being able to work, understanding like all the different places and having been able to adapt and people trusting me and loving me and holding me in this yeah. moment in all the different ways that my relationships feel strong there's places that can be stronger, but you know, mm-hmm. overall, I feel like, oh, I feel deep gratitude. Um, so yeah, so that's how I am. Thank you for asking. That's a gift. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so ir- curious. This is, you know, we're going to move into emergent strategy, but I want to, I really, as an infinitely curious parent, 
I'm interested in what role you feel like tradition plays inside of the creation, inside of the like creation of your family and inside of your life. You talked about like just sitting with that and I'm like, oh, what is the importance of tradition creation? Oh, yeah. Well, I like, I'm thinking about your question in two ways that one is what is the importance of tradition? And then two being what is the importance of tradition creation? Because I feel like the the importance of tradition is, what I'm noticing is that it's different for my children than it is for me, you know? Um, Last night I was reflecting on how um, important boundaries are, you know? And how for children, especially, I mean, we all know that they're important for us, but, but for children, how they, they long for boundaries. Um, And one of the things that I noticed, particularly on transition days, where my children are coming back from their other parents house, is that they come back to me, really kind of kicking and screaming for boundaries. Um, And they do a lot of like, like just pushing to see where the boundary is. And I think that's in part because they know that I will set it, you know, and that will make them feel safer. Um, and so they come back and they're looking mm-hmm. for it. They're looking for it. Like they're act, they're kind of pushing, 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 acting, acting, <laughs> like acting out, trying to get me to set it. And then I set it and then they settle. Um, <laughs> and I think mm. that there's a way that it's, I think there's a way that, you know, that family traditions, spiritual traditions, holiday traditions, whether they're connected to spirit or not, it's like they, they give us kind of like a, I don't know if they serve as, as boundaries exactly, but it's like, there are these like meta markers in our lives. And, um, it's like and I think for kids in particular it gives them something to orient to in time as like well you know regardless of what's Mm -hmm. happening in this moment I know that this is going to happen and it's a tradition that our family does this way and I know what that looks like and (laughs) I know I can expect this to happen and it's going to be this many weeks until that happens and so I think there's something just like developmentally that's really helpful for children to have those traditions to orient to as metamarkers of their lives. Cause otherwise, you know, I don't know, I don't know how children understand time. I know that it's different from how I understand time, but I think it, I think it helps them to orient in time, you know? <laughs> and so then, you know, I'm, you know, I, I think all of that is at play. And then two years ago, our family, as we knew it, like me and my children, our family, as we knew it, like fundamentally it's like our our family washed ashore and kind of had to like stand up and walk around and figure out like okay what is this new landscape and uh are there plants here (laughs) you know and we've been having to kind of organically figure out well what do we what are the things that we hold on to and what are the things that we let go of? And what are the things that we might want to create anew? Um, and what I've noticed is that I have to follow their lead a lot more because I 
the things that I think are going to be the most meaningful traditions for them are not necessarily the ones that are the most meaning. So I've just noticed that I kind of had me say, oh, you know, like, this is how we've done this. Is this the way we want to keep doing it? Or I will check in with them and... And the wonderful thing about the, about tradition with my children has been the way that it gives them a real sense of agency over, um, home life and family life. One of the things that I didn't realize until we moved into our own place was how much, how little control they had over their own physical space and how much they wanted control over their own physical space. And so um, in my home that I live in with my children now, they have a lot of agency and a lot of, uh, they have a fair amount of control over the physical space. And that applies too to the traditions, you know? So as we're, we're gonna be getting a Christmas tree, we're going, we're doing a committee process around where the tree is gonna go. <laughs> You know, it's not formal, but it's like, you know, I'm letting them advise on like, well, where, where do we all think it's best for this tree to be? It doesn't have to be just mom's decision. Like we want, we want the space to feel good for all of us. It's little things like that, that give them a sense of like, just more agency and more freedom than I think that they had before. And it feels appropriate to where they are developmentally too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say I might answer that question differently at a different phase of my life with my children, but because I'm in, because I'm still in this like phase where I'm, where we're making our life anew, I think that I, I can't help but see and understand the tradition creation in relationship to that. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. And I feel like, I mean, so many families hopefully go through some process of that, of deciding or figuring that out often at the beginning and then they adapt throughout, but it's really helpful to hear what that has meant for you. And then also then it kind of naturally leads me to just this place of like, well, what do you feel like emergent strategy can learn from parents and the kinds of, you know, things that we need to navigate in supporting our little ones to, um, you know, be whole and safe and blossom into their in authenticity. And so what can emergent strategy learn from parents and what can, uh, and what can it offer? Well, I was thinking about, I think about this in relationship to some of the harder principles of emergent strategy to practice. I think are, there are places where parents have something to offer, some wisdom to offer into those challenges, you know, um, I think particular thinking like the, the principle of emergent strategy that's um, thinking about transformative justice as resilience, right? And that is obviously thinking differently about how we achieve justice is one of the hardest, is one of the hardest principles of emergent strategy to put into practice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's one of the, it's one of the most provoking and challenging areas of work, I think, in our world right now. I think as parents, well, it's like you were saying before about how, you know, we're having to move through the world thinking about the harm that we may unintentionally cause. And we have to think mm -hmm. about that as 
just human bodies moving through a pandemic. But then as parents, we also have to think about the harm that we unintentionally cause our children. And um, as parents, we're often through our parenting work, we're also healing harm that was unintentionally caused by our parents. And so I think there's a way that we as parents can see and experience that spectrum of harm differently. It's not, we, we can see and experience a sort of embodied spectrum of intergenerational harm, harm that's been done to us, harm that we cause to our children. And we innately understand in, that in order to remain functional as parents, we have to be in a practice of like forgiveness and metabolizing, you know, of those experiences, like forgiving, forgiving our parents, forgiving ourselves, forgiving our children and metabolizing all of it and learning from all of it as it's happening so that we can not, so that we're, you know, not reinforcing those same patterns with our children, not doing the same harms to our children that were done to us. And I think that, you know, what's the, what's the critique of punitive systems? You know, it's like a punitive system is prioritizing efficiency over everything else, right? It's saying, it's saying that like, you know, this is the most efficient way to meet out consequence for, for people um, behaving in contradiction to whatever the dominant culture has set as the rules. And there's no room for complexity inside of it. And I think that like, I, I guess this is kind of roundabout, but I feel like what I notice in myself as a mom is that I am, I am a very, very efficient parent, right? Like I do prioritize efficiency in my parents, in my parenting, but I, but I also equally prioritize healing, right? Um, and I can see when it's out of balance in the way that I'm relating to my kids. Like I can, t I had this experience this morning, actually. I'm like, I'm using quieter voice because the kids are in the next room, but <laughs> I'm like, I totally had this experience this morning where, um, one of my kids was acting out and she's my kid who always does. Right. So I have three and there's one of the three who is the externalizer. She's the one, she's like the bellwether. So if like, if anything's happening, she's the one who's going to externalize the shit out of it. The other two are much more likely to internalize, right? So my externalizer, she's the one who's like, she's the screamer. She's the one who's more likely to, you know, stomp out of a room and slam a door. And we had this, we had this whole moment this morning where she woke up and she wasn't feeling great, but she hopped right out of bed and was acting, you know, like she was fine. And her younger sibling woke up and the younger sibling was like not feeling great and didn't even want to get out of bed because they were feeling so badly. So I was like, okay, you stay in bed, keep sleeping. And then my acting outer kid was like, that's not fair, you know, and just like immediately had this really intense response to what she perceived as differential treatment. Right. 
And I, I was like, it's too early in the morning for this. So I was like, uh, uh-uh, no, <laughs> you know, I was like, my first, my first response was to prioritize efficiency over anything else. I was like, it's almost 9am. It's almost the start of the school day. You need to be ready for your first video meeting of the day. The nanny's about to arrive. I need to get ready for, you know, so I'm like, I'm, I'm totally having the efficiency response. Hmm. And, and all I'm doing is like escalating her further because she's feeling less and less and less heard and seen in what her actual feelings are about. So I literally had to put myself on timeout. I walk up to her and I was like, I'm going to take three minutes Mm -hmm. in the kitchen by myself to reset. And then I hope you reset too. (laughs) And then I came back to her and just like, was like, tell me what you're actually upset about. Right. She told me what she was actually upset about. We hugged it out. It was fine. Right. It was fine. And and I was, I was pleased with myself that I was able to put myself on timeout, right? Because I could see that because I was escalating and getting really, really angry with the way that she was being inefficient, I was about to cause harm, right? I was about to make her feel like her feelings didn't matter. Now that's like, well, you know, those are relatively minor harms in the scale of harm, but those are the kinds of harms that over time you know, really socialize um, children into society as it is, right? Society as it is wants children to become adults who believe that their feelings matter less than their productivity. And I don't want to socialize my children into that. And this is where I'm tying it finally back to the emergent strategy principles. I'm like, where was I going with this? But I think I found my way. Um, (laughs) That I think that, you know, me me socializing my children to value their feelings at least as much as their productivity, if not more, isn't just about, it's not just about like, I want you to love yourself and be authentic. It's also about, I want you to know when something is unfair. I want you to be able to know when harm is happening or when it's going to happen. And those are the kinds of things that if you're, if you're being socialized to downplay your feelings or disconnect from your feelings or dissociate from your feelings, it's a lot harder to know when harm is happening to you, right? And so I think that that's one of those places where we don't usually know it as parents. If we're trying to do this kind of work with our children, we usually don't, we wouldn't think of it in the terms that emergent strategy would put it in. We wouldn't think of it in terms of transforming or transformative justice as resilience, but there's a way that mm-hmm. that is what we're doing when we are teaching our children that their feelings matter, <laughs> that their feelings matter more than doing their work on time or showing up exactly the way we wanted them to show up that day. And I think, I think there are ways to extrapolate those lessons broadly for organi- for families, for communities, for institutions, and for movements. I wish someone, I wish, truly, I wish someone could just like, you know, follow some of us parents around who are trying to do this and just like document what we're doing and then extrapolate <laughs> and say, mm-hmm. okay, what would this look like? <laughs> what would this look like at a different scale? And I think that's also what, you know, that's part of what emergent strategy is inviting, right? Is saying there are things that hap- are happening at these micro scales, like the scale of a relationship between a mother and a daughter. There are these lessons that we can 
extrapolate and and scale for movements as a whole. But, you know, if we don't understand that the fundamental unit of change is relationship, then it will be hard to extrapolate those lessons and scale them. Yeah. Yeah. I really, one, I'm like, yeah, we should get, let's make that happen somewhere. Somebody's hearing this. Clip us out. <laughs> Whoever's listening to this. <laughs> <do that. laughs> and has that exact, that the desire and a team of folk. Um, let's do that. <laughs> um, but um, also, uh, I'm really struck by that, right? Like, because I'm struck. I love that you put yourself on timeout. I put myself on timeout a lot as my daughter is younger. Like, I'd be like mm-hmm. I got to go take timeout. <laughs> so, and and it was necessary. <laughs> and the space just to recenter and to remember what, the, the remember the nature of the relationship that you have, the nature of like where you're trying to, be in relationship and how you're trying to be in relationship and let that more effectively determine your next steps with each other. And I, um, I'm thinking about that now, like it kind of struck me as this like, and also that capacity to like deescalate right from your own will because you did not want to create a harm. Um, and I'm like, right. ooh, how many times are we working to enact a will or even trying to protect ourselves and the escalation never meets the proper de-escalation because the nature of the relationship is so tenuous. The nature of the relationship is actually mo- primarily us versus them rather than a sense of like being connected and interdependent. And mm-hmm. Or where be, the nature of the relationship is such that escalation is the only tool for communication. Right. Because I think that also happens, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes it happens in a, where we're clearly in an us versus them dynamic, but sometimes it happens in a dynamic where we think we're in connected relationship, but the pattern, the patterning that we have is that like, I have to escalate in order to get my needs met. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, yeah. that, that really um, jives with, that jives. I get that. And so I'm kind of wondering in this uh, regard, like there's a question to me here around what is there to learn given that like my understanding is that you've done a lot of preparedness for apocalypse and we're living through <laughs> a few right now here here we are <laughs> living through a couple and i'm i am wondering how we can fortify ourselves inside of that recognizing that we have maybe Maybe we have limited tools. We definitely have tools that are more in practice than others. And I'm just wondering what emergent strategy and your mm-hmm. practice of it has to offer us as we live through these kind of apocalypses and we live through these fears and also actual expressions of us versus them where white supremacist militias are on the rise or where COVID mm-hmm. and its handling kind of definitely creates the us versus them in some ways. And so, yeah, so I'm just wondering what you feel like for this moment, emergent strategy has to offer us as we're trying to survive and put into practice these really, you know, simple but complex principles yeah. and strategies. Well, and the simplicity was one of the first things that came to my mind that one of the things I've always appreciated about the emergent strategy principles and how they 
were ultimately articulated is the simplicity of them, which makes them highly applicable across multiple environments. Um, and I think we need more and more of that kind of thinking right mm -hmm. now. Within social movements, within um, communities that are working towards change or working or even just working towards survival, I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the complexity of what's happening. And so I think wherever we can invite simplicity, we, we, are, we benefit from it. I think the other thing that I think the other thing that emergent strategy has to offer that's just wisdom for this time, this time of enormous, there is the there is multiple apocalypses right that are unfolding mm -hmm. and then there's also just big sea change happening in society that is not necessarily apocalyptic in nature but um, maybe feels like that to some people you know there's some things that i think feel apocalyptic depending on your your positionality in society um <laughs> so i think there's that but i think that 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 orientation that's about just about change itself, like how change happens. The fact that the fact that change is often really nonlinear and that in fact, sometimes cycles have to repeat themselves multiple times in order for a different outcome mm -hmm. to be able to be mm -hmm. possible. I think that that is really important wisdom for people to orient to right now, because, you know, there is a sort of I feel like there's a way of thinking out there that suggests that it's not okay for, mm -hmm. for um, cycles to repeat themselves, or it's a, it's a sign that we're not getting anywhere if cycles repeat themselves. Well, I think in reality, cycles do have to repeat themselves multiple times, typically before behavior will change or before we have enough muscle to make a different choice. And then, you know, I think scientifically, sometimes cycles just do have to repeat themselves before a different outcome will naturally unfold or mathematically be, be possible, right? <laughs> and so, and so I think that, I think that mm -hmm. in that regard, like taking that, that particular ES principle of nonlinear and iterative change and looking at the current conditions and seeing like, yes, there's a lot that's happening right now that is functionally a cycle repeating itself. And then there's a lot that's happening because the conditions have changed and the conditions changing have made other things possible inside this landscape that weren't possible before. And our job is just to meet that, to just meet that moment, meet, meet it with readiness, you know, with readiness and rigor. The whole thing that I've been talking about with with the folks that I work with and the students that I work with, a lot of my focus these days is just about rigor, you know, about being able to bring spiritual rigor and practical rigor to, <laughs> to whatever your work is. You know, I really believe so long as I'm holding myself to a rigorous standard of excellence in my work, I can meet whatever is unfolding. Um, I don't have to be able to control it. I don't have to be able to predict it. I only need to be able to meet it and move with what's happening. That is, that is my job. That's my role. You know, I think it's like, you know, when you live under, we've been living under chronically traumatic conditions for hundreds of years. And 
any survivor knows that when you live in like chronically Mm -hmm. traumatic conditions, you start to place a high priority on being able to control your environment, right? Because that gives you sort of a, it gives you sort of like a semblance of agency. If you feel like you can have control over your environment, it's just a step on the journey to healing from your trauma, but it's an important step, but that you can get stuck there, right? You can get stuck Mm -hmm. in that place of thinking like, I have to have control over my environment in order to feel safe. And actually it's, you know, there's, there's steps beyond that place of needing to be in control where you actually can release a sense of needing control over the environment because you've invited a sense of agency from within and you have the ability to meet whatever your environment is, is bringing to you. And I think that that's, that's like the shift that we have to make right now. I see a lot of folks right now who are longing for control over their environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have that for many years to come. You know, we may not, we may not see that in our lifetime again, a real, a real felt sense of control over our environment. And I think we have to really start preparing ourselves for a different way of being in the world for that reason. I really appreciate that. I feel like that's so true. And I can see all the ways in which the places where I have the most interesting tension is in this particular experience of honoring, like surrender and control, you know, it, at, at the level of work or at the level of interpersonal. It's like a so really given that so much is in flux. So I really, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm actually wondering, given that you've talked about your role and your work, you know, how has your cooperative aorta been adapting through this pandemic? Mm. I love my workplace. I have to say we were in kind of a lucky position at the outset of the pandemic because we were already remote. You know, we're a, we're a national organization and we have members on both coasts and in the Midwest and in the South East. And so the, the major adaptation that we had to make in terms of our external work was converting a lot of our programming to online, right? And I think that we made, uh, we made a positive internal decision very, fairly early on that we were basically going to say like, you know, from, April 2020 to at least April 2021, if not beyond, everything is going to be virtual, right? We're not even, because, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you do remember this, but that there was a lot of like, at the outset of the pandemic, it was sort of like, well, maybe in two months, we'll all be able to, (laughs) so it seems kind of (laughs) hilarious now, but, but I remember, you know, like in April, it was sort of like, we were still doing the kind of rolling, well, at least for one more month, we're all going to do it this way. And then hopefully we'll be back in person again. And it's just kind of, um, we were so naive, right? But, (laughs) but Aorta, we decided, we decided pretty early Mm -hmm. on, we were 
going all virtual with all of our programming. And then we spent April through like, you know, July, August, converting as much as possible of the materials that we felt really could functionally be converted into a virtual environment, moving that stuff to virtual. It's been a huge learning curve because, you know, similar to the work that you all do with ESII, a lot of our work, it's best served by being embodied with one another, you know? Um, so I think there was like, there was some mourning that we had to do about like, well, and some reality-based planning we had to do about like, well, what, mm-hmm. what are we going to say is going to be possible inside of these virtual spaces? And what are the things that we're letting go of and, and recognizing are no longer possible? That was like the first stage. And then the next stage for us was starting to look at everything differently through like an accessibility lens and realizing that moving to virtual actually made so much of the work that we were doing so much more accessible to so many more people. And not in ter- not just in terms of like the number of people who could access our work, but also in terms of how people access the work, you know, like we, I started to see really quickly when I started doing virtual trainings with people that you know, in a virtual environment, people have a lot more of a sense of control over their own participation. That was an unexpected, that's like an unexpected gift of, of doing this work virtually is like folks, folks in the room, the room, the virtual room actually have a lot more control over their own experience. Now we've had a huge learning curve around, around accessibility. And, you know, so there's all this stuff that we're starting to integrate into our workshops now that we didn't have before, even when we did virtual events before. So now we're having interpreters, we're having in captioning. We have a whole different set of practices that in terms of how we prepare for Mm -hmm. virtual spaces and how we facilitate them to ensure maximum participation. And that's been really beautiful. Like we, I think we've, we've all gone through this really awesome upgrade (laughs) in terms of like, in terms of our capacity to facilitate with like a disability justice lens on all of the work that we're doing. So that's, I would say that's like the external facing adaptations that we've made. But then internally, the pandemic really offered an opportunity for us to, you know, lean into our our values in a different way. And to, you know, we're already a democratic and horizontal organization, right? Like we're all, all of us are owners of the business. Um, so we're already accustomed at some level to thinking about our resources collectively, but the pandemic really like required us to think about our collective resources differently, um, because the pandemic impacts us differentially. Right. And that became really Mm -hmm. immediately clear, (laughs) right? Like for anyone, for anyone who had school-aged children, there was a whole different set of impacts for the pandemic. And, you know, I had to go on a three-month leave from work starting starting mid-March. I was just, I had to just go away. I had to drop everything, hand what I could off to my coworkers, cancel with certain clients that couldn't be handed off to my coworkers. I had to just be like, sorry, I know we were going to do X, Y, Z. I can't do it. Got to drop it because suddenly I'm having to, you know, run a non-consensual virtual homeschool situation. And 
that I was woefully unprepared for, as were all of my children's teachers. Like none of, no one had any preparation (laughs) for what was happening. Um, And so suddenly I just had to peace out, right? And my coworkers then just had to adapt for that. And then coming back, my coworkers and I have had to continue adapting for the ways that my children being in distance learning and other people's children being in distance learning because completely changes what kind of work we're available for and how much of that work we're available for. And so we've had some really beautiful, challenging, and I think really life-giving conversations about like, yeah, what does it mean to what does it mean to have to do an internal shift of workload mm-hmm. towards folks who are not parenting young children? And how are we compensating for that? How are we like, you know, how are we making sure that everyone's needs are met and that everyone's being taken care of while also not overtaxing certain people inside of our organization just because they don't have babies? How do we ensure that folks still feel like they're at choice in terms of the kind of work that they're doing? And how do we rebalance that in the end? And how do we, what do we do to make sure that it's possible for people to stay involved in our work? You know, so we, we ended up setting up like a, what we call a pandemic emergent needs fund for, um, that's purely internal. And it's like a pool of money that we set aside for folks to be able to just like request money from, whether it's like, I'm having to pay for private childcare that I never had to pay for before so that I can come back to work. So I'm requesting money for that, mm-hmm. or I'm having to do a, a brand new work from home setup where I need a whole different kind of workspace because I was never, because up until now I was working in a co-working space and now I have to do it all myself. I'm requesting money for that. You know, all the different things that we could never have anticipated for and wouldn't necessarily want to set institutional precedents around, then we have a fund that we can actually access resources that it's coming from our business, right? That we're resourcing ourselves, resourcing each other to be able to get our needs met right now without necessarily setting a precedent for a non-pandemic time, if that makes sense. So those kinds of adaptations, I think, have been really, really useful, really important, and have also helped us all really lean into democratic practice in ways that that are just like, it's, it's just upgrading everyone's skill level. And we're all, we all are already coming in with a fairly high level of skill for like democratic decision-making, but there's, it's, there's always different challenges that go with being in a horizontal workplace, you know, cause mm-hmm. you don't have in a horizontal workplace, you don't have anyone to pass the buck to, you don't have anyone to blame when, <laughs> when things aren't working, you know, it's like, we are who we are, who we have. And so it's been it's been a really unique opportunity, like getting to solve the problems presented by the pandemic in this this workplace has been a really uniquely beautiful opportunity. I'm grateful to not like I'm so grateful that I wasn't like running a nonprofit organization right now, you know, <laughs> like I wouldn't I, I feel like it would be so I feel like it would be so much harder in a way to be the bottom liner for solving those problems. And there's something really beautiful about getting to share the, we, we have a shared responsibility for solving those problems. Adrian was reflecting on this recently about how, you know, it's become clearer to her that relationship is the thing 
that will get us into the future more so than any other forms of adaptation. Totally. It feels so much more like that is true for what you're describing at the level of um, what has been working and how you've had to adapt having at the center of it, like each other's well-being, right? Yeah, I really love that. Um, and I also love how you said one of the first things you all figured out was what wouldn't translate well uh, externally, like what wouldn't translate well to the virtual. And I'm I'm really curious about that. I'm like, I'm like, I feel like this is a question that a lot of people are still in. And I love that you all figured it out. Beyond. I think primarily for this sense of like nostalgia and missing that people are really trying to cope with that like that there is so much that we do body to body because there's that resonance that occurs when we're with each other we can feel into mm-hmm. um in a way that I still think that waves are moving and we can feel into each other across these kind of lines right too but right. different right but yeah I think there's still a whole body of people really trying to figure out well what is it that we actually need to just be okay with that won't happen in the virtual space that we can either find another way of doing or just let go until it can happen again. So I'm curious about that. That's a really good question. I'm trying to remember what the things were that initially we felt like we had to really let go of. I remember that there were some, there were some particular like workshop modules that we felt really strongly either shouldn't, be put into a virtual environment or we needed to really wait until we felt like we had the foundation laid down for what we were um what we knew we could successfully lead in virtual and then we could come back to it and say all right let's let's actually take a couple of weeks to do the curriculum development around this to figure out how it would translate i know for myself like there's a lot of somatic work that i do around whiteness as cultural trauma, for instance. And I have felt over the last, you know, nine, 10 months, I have felt like a question in me about how any, any work that involves Mm -hmm. like opening up investigation of trauma and working with those wounds I have felt a real question in me around how responsible it is to do that work virtually, which is not to say that it's not possible to do trauma and healing work virtually, but like, I'm not a therapist, right? (laughs) So I have a therapist that I do my trauma and healing work with, and we are now virtual having worked together in person for four years. So it's like, Mm -hmm. we have this foundation you know, on which we built the relationship that is now in virtual, but I don't know that I would have entered into that work with her virtually. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and obviously the work that I'm doing with my clients is not, it's not therapeutic in the traditional sense, but there is an element of, there is an element of like consenting to being in a healing process that has to happen in order for people to do that work mm-hmm. well when they're in a training or a coaching relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the kind of thing that I've, that I have, I don't feel like I've drawn a conclusion about it one way or another, but I have felt a real question in me uh, around how responsible is it to try to develop this work in, for instance, how responsible would it be for me to start a new relationship with someone, mm-hmm. a new coaching relationship with someone 
where we were doing this depth of work and didn't have any kind of embodied experience with one another, you know, and that, you know, I think there are people who do, who are like highly skilled in working virtually. So I don't want to discount it. I don't want to discount it at all. I think there's some, uh, some, something about it for me. That's also just about like, I want, I want to do work that I feel like I can appropriately do in a virtual space where I feel confident in my ability to do the work virtually. I don't want to try to move work virtually that I don't feel like I can actually hold in that way. So there's that, there's my growing edge too, that like there's work that I can do in a room full of people, regardless of whether I have, you know, background history or relationship with them. There's work that I can do in a room full of people embodied that I don't know that I can do virtually. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I would want to, you know? So yes, I think some of it is personal. Some of it is personal. Some of it's about the content. And I know as a facilitator, we we all have to work inside of time constraints. That preexisted the pandemic, but the time constraints in virtual are really different. But the difference in how I feel them as a facilitator is that like, as a facilitator, even if I'm working under time constraints, if I'm in a room with people, I can feel for where the closure can come from. You know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I can like, I can feel in the energy in the room, like where, what direction, if I move there, will we be able to find our closure as a group, regardless of how much time we have left? I haven't yet figured out how we do that virtually, how we feel for the energy of closure. And so I often have virtual events where we're opening up a hard conversation. And then when the time is up, the time is up. And it's like, (laughs) it has that feeling of, and now we really have to accept and expect a lack of closure and just let this be where we ended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because the end, because it's harder for me to feel the energy of closure. Wage love. Wage love. Wage love. Wage love. This is for Shetty Y'all. Dedicate this with a heavy heart. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's so deep to me. I can really appreciate because there's also, I mean, because it comes at this place where one, you're saying people have more agency. Sometimes that means that agency is actually not letting you feel them, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is like, that's your right, but I'm trying to get to you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's deep. And also there's so many, um, and we're mitigating against all, like, or mitigating, navigating this kind of way of like reading in a whole different way um, and using less of ourselves to be able to read in some ways, right? That's a lot of the visual rather than yeah. some, of the, some of the audio, but there's other things that happen when we're in person. Well, and then there's the whole thing too of like when you're on when most of these platforms you can see yourself in addition to everyone else, Mm -hmm. and you end up spending a lot more time. Like when I'm facilitating a room full of people, I'm never looking at myself. Right. Right. 
I'm only looking at the other people in the space, but right now I'm looking at myself at least as much as I'm looking at you because I can't help but look at myself when I'm talking. And that's a whole different energy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like you're reacting to yourself as much, if not more than you're reacting to anyone who's in the room with you. And I don't think we, I don't think we talk about that enough about how the platforms themselves really shape the way that we all engage with them, you know? I'm like, where's the platform that doesn't require me to see myself? Well, you know, I want to know. There is that feature. You can, there's a hide, there's a hide yourself feature in Zoom. Just no way, really? Yes. Just so you know. Oh my God, teach me. One of these um, little situations in here that's like, if you go. Is it, does it say hide Zoom? No, it's not hide. It's like hide self view. Hide self-view. Oh my God. So anyway. Okay. I'm gonna figure this out I'll, after. I'll share with you on uh, you know, after this we end this little recording so I can tell you all about it. But I'm pretty sure it's like in your own participant space. You can go into hide self-view. Yeah. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Mia. Yes. You just totally changed my life. No, it and I think the lives of anyone who's <laughs> listening to this right now. <laughs> and then the funny thing was be how many times you had that self-view because you actually are enjoying looking at yourself. Anyway, right. I know, I'm mad yeah, at you. You, really to, okay. <laughs> I'm mad at you, but just so you know, there's a tool. Uh, That's really good to know. <laughs> Then I can be at choice, Mia. Yes. Then I can be at choice. Totally. So I have one more question because I love how when I've listened to you all talk, you talk about being a theologian every now and then. It comes up and I'm like, oh, you're a theologian. <laughs> I love it. I, 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 not only do I like, I have questions about what it means, but I love theologians in general. So I have some sense of what it means. And I, and I'm wondering how faith and hope resource you and your practice of emergent strategy. Mm, that's such a great question. How faith and hope resource me and my practice of emergent strategy. Well, so I will say one of the things that my study of theology, I really approached uh, very analytically, very much as like a student of, of history and a student of ideas. And then uh, of course it's enthralling, you know, and mm-hmm. I remember feeling, I remember just feeling um, like captured by the mystery of time when I, when I started studying theology and I remember, you know, being at once like enthralled by it and also frustrated by it. And I, I, so I was one of those, um, I was one of those theology students who was like a real nerd. I mean, I am a, I am a true nerd. I'm a true nerd in, in all senses of the word, including that um, I studied biblical Mm -hmm. languages. So I studied um, biblical Greek, which is also called the Koine. And I studied uh, briefly studied biblical Coptic and Hebrew as well. And I remember when I was studying Greek, my Greek teacher was very much his approach. He was a very wild person and his approach was very much that you had to teach yourself to think like uh, a Greek more mm-hmm. so than just reading the text. 
And I remember him sort of like thundering at me one day in class when I was feeling particularly frustrated about something, like sort of thundering at me, like, you must learn to tolerate the mystery, Autumn. And I've carried that lesson with me, like my whole, I remember writing it down during the class and I've carried it with me my whole life up to now in my, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties and there's some, there's some hope that I take in knowing that every generation of humans throughout the entire history of human life on this planet has had to reckon with that mystery, right? Has had to be in relationship with that mystery, has had to like wrestle with it, has had to, you know, find our way through the process of admitting that we don't know and can't know what is to come. And yet we have to trust that there is meaning, you know, that there is purpose. And the fact that we have so many generations of human life that have um, wrestled with that and, and come up with that same sense of purpose, that to me is what gives me hope, you know, because every last one of those generations died, just like our generation is going to, you know, it's like the, you know, we can be as afraid as we want to be about the apocalypse, but the truth of life is that we all are going to suffer and die, you know, regardless regardless of how that happens. And the fact that like that is, that death is an inevitable part of our cycle and yet we we continue to find meaning and purpose in life. To me, like that, there there is hope just in that, even though it seems maybe kind of, um, I don't know, maybe that's counterintuitive, but like for me, I find I find hope in it. This podcast is produced by Natalie Pert. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Complex Movements, a Detroit-based artist collective. The music provided is from the soundtrack of the performance installation, Beware of the Dandelions. To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.